At Bretton Woods, New Hampshire, delegates from 44 allied and associate countries arrived for the opening of the United Nations Monetary and Financial Conference. Invited by President Roosevelt to the first major world financial meeting since the London Conference of 1933, they will work in the seclusion of this White Mountains resort. Zhang Shi Kung, one of China's representatives, with Secretary and Mrs. Henry Morgenthau. United States Treasury Secretary Morgenthau heads the American delegation. On the opening day, in his role of acting conference president, he addresses the meeting. To be discussed are plans for the stabilization of world currencies. All agreements must be ratified by the governing bodies of the nations involved before becoming effective. Delegates to this monetary and financial conference pose on the hotel lawn. These meetings are designed to promote trade in the post-war world and to create a foundation for lasting peace. For guys like me, Las Vegas washes away your sins. It's like a morality car wash. It does for us what Lourdes does for humpbacks and cripples. And along with making us legit, comes cash. Tons of it. I mean, what do you think we're doing out here in the middle of the desert? It's all this money. This is the end result of all the bright lights and the comp trips, of all the champagne and free hotel suites and all the broads and all the booze. It's all been arranged just for us to get your money. That's the truth about Las Vegas. We're the only winners. The players don't stand a chance. And their cash flows from the tables to our boxes, through the cage, and into the most sacred room in the casino. The place where they add up all the money, the holy of holies, the count room. Now, this place was off-limits. Even I couldn't get inside. But it was my job to keep it filled with cash, that's for sure. They had so much fucking money in there, you could build a house out of stacks of $100 bills. And the best part was that upstairs, the board of directors didn't know what the fuck was going on. I mean, to them, everything looked on the up and up. Right? Wrong. The guys inside the counting room were all slipped in there to skim the joint dry. They'd do short counts, they'd lose fill slips, they'd even take cash right out of the drop boxes. And it was up to this guy right here, standing in front of about $2 million, to skim the cash off the top without anybody getting wise, the IRS or anybody. Now notice how in the count room nobody ever seems to see anything. Somehow somebody's always looking the other way. Now look at these guys, they look busy, right? They're counting money, who wants to bother them? I mean, God forbid they should make a mistake and forget to steal. Meanwhile, you're in and you're out. Past the Jagoff guard who gets an extra C-note a week just to watch the door. I mean, it's routine. Business as usual. In, out, hello, goodbye, and that's all there is to it. Just another fat fuck walking out of the casino with a suitcase. David Penn here. Welcome you back to the Professor Penn Podcast. Thanks for coming back. 
the engagement is growing, and uh, nothing can make me more satisfied to see more and more people uh, get involved in the game of politics and in real analysis and really thinking through the things that are going on in our world today. It's a very momentous day. It's the 13th of March, uh, 2023, and uh, we've got a banking crisis in the United States. We've got uh, uh, investigations in the House that are revealing uh, the truth about uh, many issues that have dogged the American people for the last two or three years. We have so much news, in fact, uh, that uh, it's hard for me to get down to and drill down to what I really am interested in, which is the history of our country, the history of racism, and how that racism, that social Darwinism that the Crown funded with Darwin and uh, Spencer and Sir Francis Galton, how that ideology spread through our country and then became operationalized as a political strategy and led to all manner of um, unwellness that has affected the American people uh, since 1776. And uh, I'm trying to make the case, and I, it's my hope and, and my, my work to redefine our politics around human well-being and try to get away from this man-is-inventory business model. You know, slaves are inventory, right? We want to get away from slavery and drugs and, and piracy and get back to the kind of uh, culture and the kind of political economy that is focused on one issue, the well-being of the American people. So I, I applaud you for listening. I thank you for spreading the word, for going to, to the channel and clicking the like button and the subscribe button and sending this out to your network, particularly if you're in politics, because what we're trying to do here is develop together a community and a new politics that are, you know, that new politics that's based on truth and nonviolence. We have a lot of militant feelings in our society, and I I completely understand where they come from and why they come from uh, people, why, why people are, are fed up and they, they want to express themselves in very uh, strong ways, strong manners, both verbally and even sometimes physically. Uh, but that only feeds the unwellness that is tearing our people apart. If, if we're going to uh, create a, a well-being future for America, we are going to realize that we are one people, that the situation we are in was caused by us. We will not blame our leadership. We will realize that we, the people, are the government of the United States and that our elected representatives have been unmonitored by us because we've been pursuing our lives. We trusted them. They violated our trust. And the result is we're suffering. You know, now we're suffering a bank crisis. You know, we have all manner of challenges, which is just an opportunity for the American people to rise up and get involved in politics, because that's all that's required. All that's required is for you to actually go find your local political unit, find out how to get involved, and actually put your shoulder to the mainmast of self-governance. Self-governance. Governance. That is our gift, the gift that was given to us by our founding fathers, the idea that we would govern ourselves. We would not be ruled by others, but they we would have representatives of our self-governance. And we've gotten away from it. We have a 
a credentialized class of technocratic managers that care not about how we feel, how we live. They know what's right for us. They're giving us what they want to give us. And their lives are wonderful. They're living in the Emerald Cities. And we're sitting out here in the Hustings losing everything we have. But we still have a republic. We still have a political process. For example, over the weekend, I was at a convention. Uh, you know, the political parties hold uh, regular conventions in the Senate districts to elect officers and to conduct business. And at this particular uh, convention that I attended, 20%, only 20% of the American citizens that committed to participate last year showed up this year. 80% either forgot about their commitment or rejected their commitment or decided that it wasn't worth their time or trouble to self-govern. So we had a very small group of 20% of the available citizens that were, they had committed to participate. They disappeared. Why did they disappear? Well, there's many reasons why they disappeared. But I think, or my theory of the case is, the number one reason they disappeared was they don't get any value from hanging around and participating. And I understand how they feel because there's lying and there's incompetence and there's ill intent, malfeasance of every nature up and down the, 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 the ladders of power. And when good people run into that kind of negativity, they don't want to participate. Further, everything about our political parties is focused on winning, which going back to the theme of the last podcasts, that's social Darwinism. Our political parties are 100% focused on winning instead of being 100% focused on the well-being of the American citizens. So when we have political parties, both parties, focused on defeating their enemies, of winning, of prevailing in the social Darwinist competition, and they leave out community, they leave out uplifting one another through good dialogue, good discourse, good sharing, when we're not concerned about how people feel, but only how we can use them. When that's how the country is functioning, People disengage. One could say that this is intentional, or one can say it's incompetent. I don't know. I can't get into people's heads. But I know when bad things happen, whether they are intentional or incompetent, the result is the same for the people involved. They are unhappy. They do not feel good. They are not uplifted by the experience of their participation. So I am asking all of you who are politically involved to follow me into creating a community that is based on those two critical elements, absolute truth and nonviolence. No hidden agendas, no backstabbing, and progressively, as we get better and better people involved, because it'll feel better and better to be involved, when truth and nonviolence permeates our parties as our cultural expectation, as we get better and better people, we'll get higher and higher levels of competency emerging from within the American people as we self-govern. That's my goal. I want it to be our goal. It's my hope it's our goal. 
And because we're facing such horrifying challenges, we must realize that it is our responsibility to fix these problems together as a community or our elected representatives and the unelected administrators and technocrats that populate our government are going to come up with solutions for us that we are not going to like. Or at least let me make an I statement. I am not going to like it because I am committed to my own self-governance. I'm committed to faith and freedom and family and the things that make me well. I want to have well-being. So here we sit in a uh, banking crisis here, and um, I played this um, opening from Bretton Woods because this is the, 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 the bedrock, the bedrock of the post-World War II democratic liberal order is that currency regime that was established in 1944 that the United States has dominated all these many decades. And you take a look at that black and white reel and people are dressed in suits and everybody looks so sober. Bankers always look sober. And that's why I played that great clip from Casino. Because who those bankers really are is the same people that are running those casinos. What we don't come into contact with, what we don't want to understand, is that a society, our society, our culture, that has run on debt is a giant casino. And the players, the players are going to lose because the rules are rigged against them by the owners of the casino. That scene typifies our entire system, our system of piracy and slavery and drugs. You go to the casino, you know you're going to lose money. Some, you know, some of the experienced gamblers go there to win. But they don't win because you can't beat the house. The rest of us just go. We like the bright lights. We throw money in the machines. And they're skimming that cash off. And they're taking it to the masters. That's the world we're living in. And every once in a while, it bubbles to the surface. Something blows apart. And wow, where'd all the money go? What happened to all that money? I thought we lived in a regulated system of security and safety. Isn't that we're giving, we're giving up our freedom for that, right? For our materialism and for our safety. And even though we're giving up our freedom for a radical materialism and for safety, even though we've given up our freedom, we find out our material well-being and our safety is kind of an illusion. Because when the 15th largest bank in the country explodes with almost no notice, that tells us that someone is not minding the store. Someone is skimming the take. Someone is not watching the, someone's not examining the bank. There's a failure, a breakdown. There's some kind of a problem. And I've been saying this regularly. If these PhDs are so smart, why are things so screwed up? And there's only two possibilities. A, they're not as smart as they want us to think they are. Or B, they're getting exactly the outcome they're trying to create. 
And these are issues that we have to sort out as the American people. Now, I know that there is a tremendous amount of um, held emotional content around the concept of international banking and the large banks. I get that. And I hear it all the time. And I'm going to just say, if we held our elected representatives responsible, if we took the time to gather and figure these issues out and understand them, they only make them seem complicated to keep you disengaged. Actually, it's very simple. It's all very simple. It only seems complicated. They make it seem like you need a PhD because they don't want you to believe that you're qualified to comment on any of these issues. But actually, if we came together as a community and we talked about these issues, if you met in your area with other people that you know in your network and you started to develop a dialogue and delve into these issues and maybe read a little bit and study some source materials, we'd find out these issues aren't very complicated. And I'm going to tell you one that's very simple. The regulation of our banks is in the hands of our elected representatives. The regulation of our banking system is in the hands of our elected representatives. So for all the people who are so freaked out about the banking system, and they have great reason to be, instead of being freaked out, instead of making you know, statements of desperation, please join your local political unit, get involved, and let's start self-governing. These banks are just tools. They are tools of the economy. If we have good people who have sacred honor running our government and then running our banks, we will have a just and equitable society. When we don't self-govern, guess who shows up? Not good people show up. And it is rigged to be unpleasant so that good people don't engage. Good people sit on the sidelines and criticism and they criticize and they vent and they complain and they blog and they write. No, you must be involved. Every American citizen must be involved right now because we are at a hinge point in American history. Doesn't matter if you're Democrat or Republican. Question A. Do you value your freedom? Do you want to be a free person? Let us understand what freedom is. Freedom is the right granted to you as an American citizen to pursue your well-being. Do you want to be as well as you possibly can? Do you want to create the world in which you want to live? Or... Do you want to inhabit a world that is constructed for you where you have very limited options? This is a fundamental and primary question we have to ask ourselves because I know there's a lot of people that don't value their freedom. They actually would prefer dependence. And for the people that prefer dependence, they will be unwell. It is unwell. Human beings are not created to be dependent. Our biology, our physiology, our psychology is about interdependence. So we must ask that question as American citizens. Do we want to be free? 
Do we want to have well-being? That's, that's the place to start. Because obviously, if you don't want to have well-being, you're in the place you want to be right now. Because we are sick, we are full of anxiety and disease and misinformation and, and hopelessness. And that's what they're really breeding in us. And when I say thee, we can start calling out their names. Our leaders want us to be hopelessly dependent. And that's what a banking crisis is all about. Oh my gosh, I'm going to lose all my money. Yeah, so, big deal. We rebuild. We have a society based on debt and dependency. Who came up with that idea? Why do we have an entire economy based on debt? And that is related to the Industrial Revolution and the scientific method and the financialization of our lives. Actually, we could have a society based on equity. And I'm not talking about the kind of equity where everybody is the same. Remember, they hijacked that word. Our technocratic leaders, our PhDs, took the concept of equity, which is the value of the shares or the, 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 the net worth that you have in some enterprise or some piece of property, and they took that word and they weaponized it and reversed it and turned it into everybody's the same. No, we need to have societies throughout the world. We need to have our country, the United States of America, that the American people live their lives based on equity and interdependence not debt and dependence. And this is a cultural expectation. I'm going to share a story popped into my head. Um, my grandfather on my mother's side uh, lived through the Depression. And, and I'm talking about the First Depression. They call it the Great Depression. My theory of the case is they're going to call it the First Depression here in the future. He lived through the First Depression of the 1930s as a very young person. And he was selling newspapers on street corners at six, seven years old to eat. Okay, you know, he worked to eat. And he worked very hard his whole life, and he never borrowed money. He would not borrow money because he lived through the bank failures of the 1930s. He saw people wiped out, and he had a built-in distrust of the banking system that stayed with him his entire life. He was a man of very limited ambition. And this is the critical factor that we need to think about as the American people. Where does all this ambition come from? Let me just hold that thought. So when I was a young man, I was 19, I bought my second house. I bought my first house when I was 18. My first house was way out in the country. And I bought my second house. This is a long time ago. I think the interest rate at that time was 21%. And I bought that second house, and my grandfather came over, and it was a beautiful house. And uh, he looked at me, and he said, My son, where did you get the money at your age to buy this house? And I said, Well, Gramps, I came up with the down payment, and I borrowed the rest of the money. And he got up from my kitchen table, turned his back on me, and walked out of the house and never came back. And... Some years later, I said to him, I said, Gramps, why did you do that? He said, to let you know 
that you didn't own anything. And that was his orientation. And that orientation of those old timers who had that uh, distrust of the banking system, that distrust of the casino, that casino, because they lived through that casino where everybody got clipped, where the players didn't have a chance. They were suckers. He lived through it, and he never gave it up his whole life. He was a man of limited ambition. His house was paid for. One time he told me how he operated a car for 30 years, including repairs at break-even, including gas. He kept trading cars, trying to stay ahead of the hounds. The man had limited ambitions. He wanted his house paid for. He wanted good food. He wanted education for his children. But he didn't seek to be a rich man or a materialist man. He wanted to have well-being. He had a beautiful garden in his backyard. He grew flowers and vegetables. He really liked to sit on his porch and just look at his garden. You know, a kind of a pastime that people would consider to be kind of a waste of time now. He enjoyed his family, his grandchildren. This is a kind of a, a, a cultural model that has mostly been discredited and forgotten since the 1990s, and leaving the late 1880s. As I said, the Reagan era, that's when we took off into this time period of unbridled radical materialism. Now, I'm going to make an I statement. I'm not a particularly materialist person. I don't spend money. I'm not into things. Uh, you know, I, I play music. I, I practice physical discipline. I study and read a lot. The things that I like to do are quiet and um, not ambitious. Uh, you know, I'm a business owner. Uh, I, I come out of that Reagan era. So, yes, I do have a, a, you know, a history in business, and I do have debt, and it, it bothers me, and I'm trying to change that in my life. But in my personal life, I have no debt. I spend no money, and uh, you know, I'm perfectly willing to go farm if I have to. In fact, it's becoming more and more apparent to me that we, the American people, are going to have to reel it in. Why do I know we have to reel it in? Our banking system is under stress. It's going to be bailed out. Now, who's getting bailed out? This Silicon Valley, Silicon Valley Bank, SVB. None of us ever heard of it before, and now it's on front page. It's a systemic risk. If the bank goes down, it's going to cause a, a cascade effect across our society. So the government, in its typical playbook, is putting money into that bank to bail it out. Well, what, what's being bailed out? And they're telling the story over and over again. I was watching it this morning on all the mainstream, you know, media and all the pundits. This is not a bailout like 2008 because, of course, that spawned, you know, the, uh, the anti-Wall Street movement and the Tea Party and, you know, all the left, you know, the Bernie Sanders movement. That all grew up out of this huge bailout where the Obama administration really bailed out the capitalists and they socialized the losses. In other words, we privatize profits and socialize losses. This is a little strange. This is a little strange. We, the people, are bailing out the wealthiest people in the society, and they're making a big deal out of it. We are, this is not a bailout. Well, this is a lie. It is a bailout. What they're doing is they're bailing out the depositors 
who have more than $250,000 on deposit in that bank. Who are these depositors? Well, they're large tech companies based in California. And only 3% of the depositors at that bank have less than $250,000 on deposit. So we have a depositor insurance program, the FDIC, which covers 3%. The other, you know, 97%, everybody's in there taking a risk. They're the wealthiest people in our society, the biggest players in our casino, and the casino owners are coming in and they're bailing out their buddies. And us, the suckers, we're going to pay for it. So it's a bailout of a different kind. Let's start to get to these contradictions and understand that this is the same playbook. Money's being poured into the system. This might stop. I mean, this could be the end of it. Or we could spring many more leaks over the next months. And so the government is going to print more and more money, tax us more and more. We're kind of in an economic death spiral. So I'm not about just delivering negative news. You know, I, I was at this convention and I listened to a very prominent uh, presenter talk about how terrible our school systems were. And I listened, waiting for the, I go, thank you for your diagnosis, doctor. What is the prescription? What is your treatment plan? And after they told us we were dying, they just got up and walked off the stage. And I thought to myself, hey, that's not helpful. So I want to talk about what's helpful. And I'm going to go back to the fundamental bedrock of helping ourselves is self-governance. If you don't want to lose everything you have, if you don't want to live in a prison of our own creation, because after all, it's we the people. We're creating our own hell here. If you want to turn this around, the very first step is to get involved. If you don't do that, you can complain. Thanks for watching the podcast. You know, people have to consume, but then this becomes entertainment. And I want to be entertaining, but I want to be motivating. Every single American system has to get involved. You say, well, what's my qualifications for getting involved? Are you an American citizen? You're qualified. Don't let anybody tell you that you're not smart enough, that you don't know enough, that you don't have the experience, that you're not credentialized, because that's just people casting shade on you. When you go read the preamble to the Constitution, and when you read our Constitution, it doesn't say you have to have a Ph.D. or a college degree or that you have to spend 20 years in industry to qualify you to participate in government. Quite frankly, you are an American citizen. You are the American government. So you might as well get involved because your non-participation is a vote, number one. Number two, there's money in my pocket, and there's money in your pocket, and you vote with that money every day. So now it's time to sort out what companies and what products contribute to the well-being of America because you vote with that money, and you want to hit these people in the pocketbook and make them pay attention to you? Don't buy their products. You have companies that you do business with that you know have no customer service, you can't get anybody on the telephone, they don't handle your returns or your adjustments, they ignore you, it's money in like that casino, they skim it, 
And when you got a problem, you're a sucker. Why are you giving your money to these companies? Take the time to find a small business person, a person that's operating a family-owned business, and give your money and your time to that business. That business owner is going to get to know you. They will know your name and they will deal with you in a fair and uplifting fashion that will increase your well-being and it will increase their well-being. So that's two things that you can do to take action right now. Get involved in the political process and vote with your money. When you are in the political process and you're watching these podcasts and you're reading and all the time you're spending thinking about politics, now you're going to be in groups of people that are similarly interested Argue. Don't let people tell us that argument is bad. Our entire political system is based on conflict. We are taking violent, physical conflict, which comes when politics breaks down, like a civil war or a revolutionary war. War is a failure of communication. When you get into your political unit, hold to your opinions. Argue with style, with respect, with nonviolence. Work out your opinions, work out your political ideas, and practice presenting them because you might have the idea that moves us forward. Have the courage to go find out. It does take a little bit of courage, but really everybody else there has got feet of clay. We're all afraid. We're all confused. It is by coming together as a community and struggling that, I'll give you another story. Me and one other person started getting together for coffee several years ago, just the two of us, with the idea was if our ideas were good, other people would come. And this thing is now a movement with hundreds of people involved, soon to be thousands, then hundreds of thousands, if it's God's will to be so. So your showing up, you're voting with your money, you're working on your ideas, you're practicing the presentation of your ideas. This is how we find solutions. Not by waiting for our government, not by waiting for our alleged leaders, because they got it so screwed up, we don't even know if the money's good. And as a matter of fact, the money is not good. That dollar bill in our pockets is a piece of paper. It represents the creativity and the hard work of the American people. Money is a system of codifying creativity and the exchange of creativity. It's a medium of exchange. It makes bartering more efficient. But when the money is debased, it debases our creativity. It makes us as human beings less valuable. Printing money, inflation is the symptom of too much money supply. Printing money, which is the root cause of our problem, why are they printing money? Because our income is less than our outgo. Why is that? I can't do it. If I spend more than I take in, I go bankrupt. Does our, do our leaders think we're immune from going bankrupt as a country? Do our leaders think? Do I believe that our leaders believe 
<clears throat> that our country is immune from bankruptcy and currency collapse. I don't believe that. I think they know it. We have the wrong leaders. And why do we have the wrong leaders? Because we, the American people, have been taking the benefits of the financialization of our creativity. All this free money that's sloshing around. Well, now we're paying for it. It's called inflation. Now we're paying for it. It's called underemployment. Now we're paying for it. It's called you know income inequality. We are paying. We, the American people, are paying for our own non-involvement. Get involved. Vote with your money. Work on your ideas in a community. Hone your skills. And let's start looking for solutions to problems. Let's start looking for solutions to problems. Well, that was a 37-minute introduction. And I'm going to go back to what I say. What I'm really wanting to do is get down to racism and imperialism and manifest destiny and the issues that have plagued this country based on the academic history of Europe, the social Darwinist, the Darwinism that, that dominates everyone's thinking, dominates the political parties. It's all about winning. No, our political parties, both of them, could transform if we participate into being about human well-being. Winning? Winning? What the hell is winning? You mean I'm going to beat? A fellow citizen? What is that? What kind of crazy-ass thinking? We believe crazy things because we're Darwinists, because our grade schools are Darwinists, our high schools are Darwinists, our colleges and universities are Darwinist. When the entire society is shot through with the political ideology that masquerades as scientific truth, and when I say a political ideology, we've worked together. This was a funded enterprise. Our universities are funded by government. And he who has the gold makes the rules. The funding determined the output. The output you know, justified colonialism. We imported that horrifying academic tradition into our universities, our elite universities, and that has proliferated up and down the waterfront of our society. What's lost? Any kind of concept of spirituality or human well-being. We've just given up on it. Hence, our life expectancies are falling. So we have a country that is shot through with this social Darwinism, and we're paying the price for it now, all of us. But we do have miracles. We really do have miracles. We have a country that still is governed by a constitution and a form of Republican governance. And we had an election in 2022 that was supposed to be this humongous red wave. It wasn't. I don't know why. I, know, I mean, I read all the reasons why people said it was, but that's just people speculating. What do we know happened for sure? the Republican Party gained a small advantage in the House. And because they got that advantage, it allowed the Republican Party to set the agenda for investigations. So not only do we have a banking crisis blowing up, but now we have all these different investigations going on, which are bringing up all kinds of truths and data that were not 
exposed in a Democrat House. I don't know why the Democrats didn't want to expose it. They had a different truth they wanted to expose. Let's just say, again, that when four corners surround a car accident and we have four observers watching that accident, we get four different versions of the truth. They're all correct. Now, when we demonize each other and we don't listen to each other, we lose all that information that comes from all those different perspectives. Another thing we can start to do, besides get involved, vote with our money, participate, hone our thinking, listen. When you get involved in politics, you actually have the opportunity to listen to other people who oftentimes are smarter and more informed than I am. And I love that because I get a chance to learn. Okay, so I said, here's the first question. Do you want to be free? Second question, do you want to learn anything? I do. I love learning. I had someone tell me over the weekend, you're changing so quickly. We don't even know who you are. Dad, that was a dad comment. And I said, isn't it great that dad is always learning and growing and changing and evolving? Isn't this a good model for my children to see that even though I'm older than they are, I haven't stagnated. I read every day. I'm constantly looking at my thinking, reevaluating what I'm thinking. Well, in times of rapid change, it's very important that all of us reevaluate our thinking. Back to this Bretton Woods thing. I got to stay on track a little bit because an hour and a half goes by so quickly. And I want to try to get to some of this incredible information that's going on today. Bretton Woods, the predicate, the predicate of the post-World War II Democrat liberal order. Why? It was about the money. Why? Because we've been progressively materialist since Darwin and Spencer and Sir Francis Galton. We live in a social Darwinist world. That's a material world. And somehow money, money became about materialism. To me, money is about my creativity. Money to me says, if people buy my creativity, I get a reward called money. I don't look at it as about things. I look at it about creation. Money to me is about creation. And let's remember what the system was before money it was called feudalism. And we're rapidly heading back to feudalism. Money was a system that broke down feudalism. When you were born in a feudalistic society, if I was born in a feudalistic society, a society of kings in the church, into whatever stratum of society I was born, that's where I died. It was a caste system. I could not escape my birth. I died exactly where I was born. As the money system came into being, <clears throat> people were able to move up and down a social ladder. It undermined the control of the feudalistic overlords. Money was also a very efficient system, generated what's called wealth, and that's why the feudalistic overlords tolerated it for a very long time. That money system created freedom. But like any other system of freedom, if the people do not maintain its integrity, it is easily corrupted and inhabited by evil or bad people 
who then take that system and use it as a system of control. And that's exactly where we are at today. This money system that brought about tremendous wealth and prosperity for the American people after World War II, a giant middle class, huge manufacturing opportunities, one-income families, beautiful lives. I mean, really, people that remember it know that life was, there was a period of time in America with all of its sins and with all of its flaws and with all of its inequalities and racism. Life was a lot better than it is today because the gains, the creativity, the output of the American people was spread out much more broadly so that many more people got a chance to have a seat at the table. And, of course, they earned it. Now, there's a couple of ways to earn a seat at the table. One is to be involved in politics. But if you go shoulder a weapon in a world war and you come home after risking your life or maybe giving a limb or seeing the horrors that you saw, you have participated in the American experience. And so after that World War II you know, period ended, those people that came back, they call it the greatest generation, they were very sober and real people. They had seen horrible things. They valued freedom. And maybe their one sin was they coddled the baby boomers and protected them because they wanted to give them so much love and so much safety, which they did not have. That generation had lived through the Great Depression. That generation had lived through World War II. They had suffered hell, hell beyond our understanding. And they wanted to protect their children from those terrors. Was that a sin? If it was a sin, it was a very well-intended sin. It was a sin. It separated the people from truth. But it was very well-intended. And they created a world that, you know, we are basically debased now. And how do we debase it? By taking it for granted and letting other people run it right into the ground. And they are running it into the ground. And let's talk about some of the ways they've done it. The Bretton Woods system, that system was based on the United States being a fair arbiter of disputes and created a world reserve currency that was open for all. In other words, the United States took on the mantle of leadership after World War II, pushed the British out of the way, which we've gone over the Atlantic Charter and how Roosevelt really forced Churchill to give up the British Empire. That led to the period of decolonization, a wonderful period in human history where people were given the opportunity to self-determine their political futures. That was the democratic post-World War II liberal order. It's been perverted. I know there are people listening that said it was perverse from the beginning, and that may well be true. I do not know. I am not in anybody's head. But there was a moment that we, the people, were handed the opportunity to self-govern. We screwed it up by letting evil people hijack this project. Okay, I'm taking responsibility. I'm involved in politics. And I want everybody to know I have no ambition for it. I don't enjoy it. It's not who I am, but it's my responsibility as an American citizen. And when I see our country going down the, down the drain, my freedom going down the drain, my well-being under assault, 
when I see that and I understand it, I get involved. Join me. Send this out to thousands of people. Let's get this community going. Free People Radio is the producer of this show. Go to Free People Radio. Follow Royce White. Please call me crazy. There's a growing engagement with, with these ideas. And as we create a community together that is focused on human well-being, we can turn this around. We can't leave it up to our so-called leaders because they're leading us into a nuclear war and a financial collapse. How did this beautiful Bretton Woods system get perverted? Okay, ambition. The American people became drunk with power. We, the American people, loved the fact that we had the strongest military in the world, that we had the most efficient economy in the world, the greatest wealth in the world, the best technology in the world. We're the best, the greatest country on earth. I still hear people saying America is the greatest country on earth, but go to any major city. Does that look like the greatest country on earth to you? Thousands of hundreds of thousands, millions of people homeless, living in 10 cities, rampant drug abuse, crime out of control. I mean, this is not greatness. This is squalor and degradation. Squalor and degradation, falling life expectancies. How did we get here? Drunk with power and ambition we were, the American people. And one of the things that we did to undermine our own hegemony is we started to use this financial system to control other countries. Instead of having an open monetary system that we maintained using a legal system that was at one time viewed as the finest in world history, our American legal system, our advocacy system, our conflict-oriented system, where people went into court and they were in front of judges who people believe these judges were impartial, not political, another lie, like separation of church and state. Judges have always been political. There's always been judicial misconduct. There's always been judicial graft, always. But again, we elect our judges. If, for example, all of you go to your elections and there's a whole list of judges. The judges always run unopposed, and none of us know who these judges are. Okay, that's our fault. We need to know who the judges are. We need to find judges that truly are ethical people that are in the legal profession imbued with sacred honor. We have no respect for our lawyers because a lot of them are crooks. It doesn't have to be that way. We allow it to be that way because culturally we have set up the rules that our lawyers can be crooks our doctors are now car mechanics, and our priests engage in all manner of horrible acts. We've allowed our professional class and the professional ethic to become besmirched by ambition and materialism. It doesn't always have to be this way. We, the American people, can change it. We still have a constitutional Republican process of, of getting involved, of getting involved. So we, the American people, allowed our elected representatives to weaponize the financial system that we created at that Bretton Woods uh, conference. And we have undermined our financial system with something called financial sanctions. Financial sanctions are when our government 
places financial restrictions or controls on either governments or people, which prevents them from fully participating in the worldwide economic system that we allegedly created. In other words, we went from a fair arbiter of worldwide increasing wealth and well-being to a dictator who said who got a piece of the action, kind of like the people that ran the casinos. Right now, our government has sanctions on North Korea, Cuba, Iran, Syria, Venezuela, Russia, thousands of people throughout the world. We actually confiscate the money of these people in these countries. That's called piracy. And what we've done is we've driven other peoples and other countries to create their own economic institutions because we, the American people, are no longer trustworthy. Now, is it incompetence that we have a $32 trillion debt? Or is it intentional? Who cares? We're $32 trillion in debt. I'm going to give you my theory of the case. We have to pay this off. We, the American people, have created this debt. We, the American people, have incurred this debt. This debt must be paid off. It seems impossible. And they tell you all the time when I say they, our mainstream media. It either doesn't matter or it'll never get paid back. You know, when we don't pay that back, they're going to foreclose on who? Us! Because that debt is backed by the full faith and credit of the United States government, which is we the people. So what they're not telling you is, when that debt is in default, every asset that I have and that you have is going to get confiscated. You will be broke. I will be broke. We will be completely without resources and utterly dependent on a government led by evil people and incompetent people, people that do not have my well-being and the well-being of my family as their first and only concern. Their first and only concern is social Darwinism. What their playbook tells them is survival of the fittest. If they can steal all the money, if they're the sons of bitches that are skimming the casino and we can't catch them, hey, that just means they're smarter than us. They won the game. They skimmed the casino. They took. You see how I get when I get mad? I can't even get the words out. Our government is run by people who believe that if they can take the skim and rob us and we let them do it, that means it was correct because they're Darwinists. They don't have one shred of spiritual insight, integrity, or responsibility that governs their ambitions or their behavior. And if we the people allow them to continue, they will enslave us by taking everything away from us. And we're watching it happen. Zane, could you play that next uh, bit on the Silicon Valley Bank, please? Sally, this is rapid how quickly this bank went into total collapse. It was just a couple of days, and it happened in the middle of a day on a Friday, which is highly unusual. I know. It's been a really stunning turn of events here, a very brief potted history of what happened. Um, this bank, it had really a one-two punch of having a very concentrated depositor base with startups, and then it also felt the pain of rising interest rate hikes. And then over the past few days, it tried to initiate this rescue plan and raise 
capital, but unfortunately had to abandon that plan. Um, and then the FDIC stepped in to actually close the bank. And now we have two very big questions, which are what happens to the bank? And also, how did regulators miss this? You know, when we're breaking news, Sally, you're my first call. And I want to see if you could like walk us through here on what happens next and what the market should be watching for. Well, in terms of what happens next, um, the, the bank actually we're not entirely sure what the progress will be. Um, but we can expect that the bank goes into some sort of sale procedure. Um, we knew that it was exploring other op options after the equity raise was cancelled. Um, and then it, the questions uh, circle what happens to its insure, its um, depositor base. There are insured depositors who, as long as they're insured to the degree of, two, who are insured to the degree of 250,000. And then there are a huge amount of uninsured depositors. About 90% of the bank's depositor base are uninsured. So so what happens to them? That's another big question. Yeah, and if those depositors that are uninsured, Sally, aren't made whole, does that not just intensify the risk of contagion here? I think that's what the bank regulators really have to act now to stave off. Um, they don't want to have another Silicon Valley bank on their hands next week. And we know that the issue that the bank has been hit with, it's a kind of disease that other banks are also facing to varying degrees. Um, Silicon Valley Bank was a really extreme example of what happens when the Federal Reserve hikes interest rates. And it was compounded by the fact that the bank has this concentration in startups. Um, and so it really needs to, the regulators really need to act fast in order to contain this to stave off any kind of fears that it will happen to other banks. Well, this is uh, very interesting. You know, I want to just interpret a little bit of this. This bank failed for many reasons. You know, when things fail, it's generally not one single cause. One of the biggest reasons this bank failed was the rapid rise of interest rates, which the Federal Reserve has imposed to address the issue of inflation. Uh, the, the Fed has a dual mandate statutorily, which is to go for maximum employment and to maintain a stable inflation rate. It has a Fed, a Fed target of 2% a year. And that in and of itself is interesting because, you know, it's baking in a certain amount of piracy as just normal because inflation is piracy. But the Fed raised the interest rates because our, our inflation is out of control Inflation's out of control because of all the money that's been printed, the financialization of our economy, the spending is greater than the income, and the Fed is forced to make that up either through the sale of bonds or through the outright just creation of fiat currency. And, you know, the, the chickens are coming home to roost. You know, the, the, the bill is coming, the time is coming to pay the bill. We've li been living in a dream world for about 20 years, and now it's, you know, we're getting out to the end of this now. So the Fed raised this interest rate, and that curtailed the business operations of its customers and made its bond portfolio less valuable. How many banks have the same disease? I don't know. You don't know. We're being told everything's okay today. By the time you see this podcast, we may find a few more leaks have sprung up in the, in the dam. And the little Dutch boy is going to be sticking his fingers in there, plugging those holes with what? My and your life energy. We are bailing out people far wealthier and far more powerful than we are. Where's the bailout for us? 
hey, you know what? They're going to offer us one. And that's something we're going to be talking about a lot because they got a plan for us. They just want us so hopelessly dependent and so horribly vulnerable that when they come with their solution, hey, they're going to make us an offer we can't refuse. That's the plan here. That's my theory. We're going to get into it a lot over the next weeks. And what's great about this is many of you know exactly what I'm talking about because this is no longer a secret. The plan or what's going on here has become all too obvious to many of us, which is great because when we the people know their plan, we can come up with countermeasures, we can elect different leaders, and we can come up with something that's about well-being and not about slavery because their plan is going to double down. You know, you see how upset I get about this? We've been through hundreds of years of slavery, drugs, and piracy. We had a relatively short period of time since 1945. We've had a little bit less slavery, drugs, and piracy. We've had the illusion of well-being or increasing wealth and wellness. Those times are over. We're going back to slavery, drugs, and piracy at a level that is unprecedented, fueled by technology and science and the scientific method, and we're about to step into a digital prison, which is being cre- has already been it's already created. So this podcast and so many other thousands of people, we're out here appealing to you to get involved so that we can defeat this idea and and create a world that is really focused on we the people and our well-being. Now, this bank, this bank, when they call it Silicon Valley Bank, I mean, that kind of speaks for itself. Only 3% of the depositors had less than the $250,000 Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation deposit insurance limit. 97% of the depositors had more than 250000 And there was a run on this bank by those large institutional depositors. It was triggered by a man, many of you know his name, Peter Thiel. Peter Thiel was born in October 1967. He's a German-American billionaire, entrepreneur, venture capitalist, and political activist. He's a co-founder of PayPal, Palantir, the Founders Fund, and he was the first outside investor in Facebook. As of May 2022, Thiel had an estimated net worth of $7 billion. $7 billion. This man is not like me, and he's not like you. He is living in that globalist billionaires club. And he, for some reason, which we do not know, which I do not know, he had many, many companies that he was banking in his venture funds, because he invests in technology startups. His company is based in San Francisco. You know, this man is reputed to be a conservative voice. But you know what? If I had $100 million a year to spend on my image, I could appear as anything. You have to know the guy by what he's into. His business is based in San Francisco, okay? That's his power base, San Francisco couple of his companies, I just looked them up. Immunosoft. This company is about genetically modifying B cells. The 12, eliminating carbon emissions by turning carbon into essential products. Modern Metal, 
enhancing the functionality of the human being through biofabrication, whatever the hell that is. In Blue Zone Bio, harnessing enzymes to deliver RNA into the human body. Vitro Labs, in vitro fertilization. STRM.bio, delivering gene therapies. Phantom Neuro, robotic limb control. This guy is a fourth industrial revolutionist. This guy, Peter Thiel, is plugged into the power structure, plugged into the people that are running the technocracy, and for some reason, he precipitated a run on this bank. I don't know why. You don't know why. We may never know why. But what we do know is that something very spooky happened here and that we have people that have limitless ambitions to change humanity. This fourth industrial revolution is about changing the nature of the human biology and the human culture to take it away. It's the ultimate of social Darwinism. It is the expression of social Darwinism. They want to live forever. They want to have ultimate power. They want to replace what, well, you know, some people think God had something to do with the creation of humanity. These people don't believe that. Remember, Darwin, had there was no God in Darwinism. It was a series of serendipitous events. These people have no faith. Therefore, they have no fear. Therefore, there is no limit on their ambitions. So what they're up to and what they're doing and why they're doing it is not open to my research. But maybe our Congress, which is now run by the Republican Party, will investigate. There may be some investigations. This is big news. And you know, all these things are tangentially connected because the failure of this bank, which could preface some failure of our economic system, is related to the offshoring of our manufacturing capability and capacities over the last 25 years, mostly to China, and now to Chinese companies operating in other countries all over the world. When you go back into the 1980s and the 1990s, America was the unrivaled economic powerhouse in the world. China, in 1999, had a $1 trillion economy. It was a backwater. But our government, under Bill Clinton, Democrat, decided that we needed to bring China into the world of economy, political economy. They may have had really good intentions. I don't know. They may have been perverse and perverted and horrifying from the start. I don't know. I know that it seems on face value to integrate the Chinese people into the world community because previously they were separated out by what was called an iron bamboo curtain. In the Soviet Union, the Russians were separated out by what was called the iron curtain, and there was this ongoing Cold War and conflict. It seemed reasonable to create one world trading and economic architecture to spread out well-being and economic prosperity through the world. That seems, you know, on its face as if it might have had some good intent. I don't know, but I know how it turned out. It's turned out terrible for the American people. Why these banks are failing, why our system is failing, 
why we're borrowing all this money and printing all this money is because we've outsourced our creativity. We don't produce here as much as we used to. In fact, the last industry we really are dominant in is creating weapons, which is a strange industry to be supreme at. So what we have is a financialized country that's backed up by a potent military. And we don't have the jobs, we don't have the economic output to bring into our coffers, into our treasury, equal to what we spend. <clears throat> so we've been deficit spending for years, years. We're $32 trillion in debt. That debt has an impact on our entire system. So the Chinese, which are our great antagonists, they are very wound into this thing. Our relationship with China is very central to this whole conversation. All of these things are interconnected. And there is big news in China, and we're on the on on you know really on a path to conflict with China. And I'm just saying, could you play this next little bit with the uh, Qin Gong, the new foreign minister of China? It's all in Chinese, and I'm going to get into what he's saying after he's done. It's about one minute. Lingho 完全偏离了理性健康的正轨。如果美方不踩刹车，继续沿着错误的道路狂飙下去，再多的护栏也挡不住脱轨翻车，陷入对抗冲突。Well, we we got to know the Chinese people. The Chinese people uh, are great, a great people, an old, very old culture, and they have a very deep uh, philosophical tradition and political tradition. And you can see it right in that man's face. There isn't a shred of emotion. This man's ready to go to the poker table, and he has no tails. There is no emotion at all. He has what's called in China a thick face. This man, we have no idea really what he's thinking, but we can hear what he's saying. And what he's saying is, is he's blaming the United States. This is the new foreign minister, Qin Gong. He's blaming the United States for the rising tensions between Washington and Beijing. He's claiming that the United States engaged in suppression and containment of China rather than fair competition. Okay, this is when we get into real BS now because the Chinese have never been into fair competition. Let's, let's, let's start to dispel some of this stuff, and let's not blame the Chinese. You know, President Trump, and not that I'm bringing him up to make him into a lion, he was very consistent in saying he does not blame the Chinese. He blames our leadership. And he's absolutely right. We have never understood the Chinese as the American people. And we viewed the Chinese as having a culture much like our own. Our leadership has never really understood the historical traditions of the Chinese people and their view of the West. And let me just summarize it for you. 
The Western powers, that would be the British, colonized and brutalized the Chinese. After World War II, the United States inherited both the British colonial empire and the Japanese imperial empire because we took it from the British and we defeated the Japanese. So we stuck ourselves right on the front lines and inhabited the space in the minds of the Chinese people of their worst enemies. Number one, the number one enemy is the Japanese, and we guaranteed Japanese security, and the British. So we've been standing in the shoes of the abusers and the and the genocide and the the, uh, the the total degradation of the Chinese people. Of course, the Chinese people allowed it to happen also, but their weakness was exploited by the Western powers. So the Chinese have always smiled at us. They've always acted like they wanted to, you know, get along, but actually they harbored a deep and abiding desire to take revenge on the West. And this has been going on my entire adult life. And it took me many years to figure it out. So the Chinese were never about fair competition. They have been doing everything they can to subvert, to get around, to, to move around, to take advantage, to steal, to rob. This is how they do business, okay? They are about winning. There's no God in China. China's a Marxist society. You want to talk about social Darwinists? These people are the sine qua non of social Darwinists. The only thing that matters in China is how much money do you have. That's how they keep score of their lives. If you get the money, you're a winner. If you don't get the money, you're a loser. So their total goal is to take everything away from us, the American people, that we have. And they don't view it as good or bad. Hey, it's the game. Don't hate the player, hate the game. And I agree with that. As long as our world is dominated by social Darwinism, as long as we, the American people, and the Chinese people, and the German people, and the African countries, and the Israelis, and every other country, as long as we allow a completely unbalanced reliance on social Darwinism to, to dominate our thinking, if we have no spiritual input into our policy, we are going to continue to brutalize each other in an unending series of who's the toughest. And what this man is saying is, it's all, the, it's all the United States' fault. Well, that's not really true, okay? It's just not. The Chinese are crying that the United States is not engage, engaging in fair competition, but malicious confrontation in a foul, he said, okay? All right, great, sounds great. Hey, there is no fair competition. We're playing, and the Chinese are playing. The last man standing is the winner. That's not good for us, the American people. We're the losers. These are elites, PhDs, playing a power game and sending us, the American people, our sons and daughters, or us, to go die in wars that they create to see who the bad. They're not putting their ass on the line. They're putting our ass on the line. And our banking system is symptomatic of the fact, and the debt is symptomatic of the fact, that the Chinese are winning the financial game and we're losing. And there's a very reason, simple reason why, very simple. They work harder than we do. And they steal our intellectual property, or we give it to them. We can talk about, and we will be talking about this over and over. These issues need to be sorted out. But the Chinese are fundamentally winning because they are 
without rules. The only rule is win, and they work much, much harder as a society than we do. If you get outworked, you get beat. So we're going to have to right now as the American people understand that if we want to maintain well-being in this country, well-being is going to include a much greater level of work participation. He went on to say Western countries led by the United States have implemented all-round containment, encircle, and suppression of China, which has brought unprecedented and severe challenges to our country's development. That's President Xi said that. Well, I think that's just great because it's a no-holds-barred conflict, and the Chinese have penetrated our government and our elites and our people with all kinds of offers and money. And we, the American people, go down and we, we're clearly at, you know, in a conflict with China. People are starting to say the Third World War has already started, but you know, nobody really wants to take any action to protect ourselves against the people we say are killing us. That's very interesting. If you say people are killing you and you're not going to take protective actions against them, and I mean we the people, we the people, we the people have got to make decisions about how we're going to live our lives. After all, we vote with our money every day. Chin said the current U.S. approach was a reckless gamble, with the stakes being the fundamental interests of the two people and even the future of humanity. He's threatening nuclear war. We will take it as our mission to defend China's interests. We firmly oppose any form of hegemonism and power politics. We firmly oppose the Cold War mentality, camp-based confrontation and acts to contain and hold back other countries' development. We will resolutely safeguard China's sovereignty, security, and development interests. Chin said multipolarity was crucial for our balance in international relations. What that means is that despite receiving a huge amount of international criticism for its support of Moscow, Beijing has no intention of changing its stance. It has no intention of condemning Russia's invasion of Ukraine. All of this is interrelated. It's all interrelated. Our banking system is failing. Our currency is failing. Our communities are failing because we, the American people, have been put to sleep. You have many friends. I have many friends. We're not, our friends are not engaged. We must, those of us who are politically aware, must continue to minister, to reach out with love, with nonviolence, and talk to people and urge them to get involved in politics, to urge them to work, to urge them to research and to understand the very dire situation that we're in. But we can turn this around. We are a great country with great traditions. We are a miraculous country. I'm going to say this again. In my opinion, our country is a miracle. And we see that miracle if we have eyes to see it. I'm going to end these last few minutes talking about what I think is just incredibly miraculous. And remember, I'm trying to cover all the current events. I'm not even getting down to diagnosing the history of racism, which is based on Darwinism, which is a justification of the British colonial model. And obviously, if you're taking slaves, you view human beings not as children of God, but as biological inventory to be exploited. We've got two basic models to choose from here. Human beings are the children of spirit and have intrinsic net worth and value because they're made in the likeness of image and image of that spirit, whatever you want to call it. You know, I'm not into picking 
religious traditions. Pick yours. Either human beings are part of that, or we are a outgrowth of serendipitous events, and we are inventory in a social Darwinist competition. And if we do not win, that proves we do not win. And that the evolution of humanity is based on winners and losers. Hey, we need to have some kind of yin-yang going here. If these people get total control of the levers of power, there's no spirituality left on the planet. And that might be their goal, a subject for the next podcast or a podcast in the future. I want to talk about how miraculous our Constitution is. Can you play this next bit about New York? Right now at 5.30, big wins for Republicans in House races on Long Island. Good evening, I'm Christine Johnson. Welcome back, I'm Maurice Dubois. It was an unexpected clean sweep for the GOP in four close congressional races. Political observers say Long Island's swing to red is seen as pivotal for the national balance of power in the House. CBS 2's Jennifer McLogan reports. Long Islanders went to bed amid fireworks celebrations from the local Republican Party. I wish them good luck. All four GOP congressional candidates from Long Island won their seats. We're tired of the nonsense. We're tired of the taxes. Not pleased. I voted Democrat across the board. In Nassau County, Democrats Tom Suozzi and Kathleen Rice did not run. Republicans George Santos and Anthony D'Esposito nabbed those coveted districts. Long Island with George and with Anthony are going to be very important factors in the uh, in the House majority. Helping to determine control of the House of Representatives, national eyes on Long Island. Could be the, 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 the seats that flip the House from uh, blue to red is exciting and it's uh, it's a piece of history. Do the math. Long Island clearly gave them the majority. Strategist Mike Dewidziak says suburbia could swing blue next time. That doesn't mean these districts are red. It just means that they're purple and there was a red wave yesterday. More of a swing issue for their pocketbook and nothing to do with them actually being aligned with the Republican Party. When you see an area that has been very dominantly blue and Democratic leaning for so long flip, it just tells you that the quality of life that the people are seeking on Long Island is not what was being delivered. Politics are more talked about, especially on social media. Public safety, pocketbook. Here, those issues mattered most. It's time to roll up our sleeves, sit down and work in a bipartisan fashion. On Monday, all the new congressional first-timers are due in Washington for orientation. First school, then the work begins in January. On Long Island, Jennifer McLogan, CBS 2 News. Well, that's a little bit of a strange outcome. This huge red wave was going to take the Republican Party into ascendancy. It was a trickle. In fact, the Republicans fell backwards in the Senate. But in the House, they got a, a majority of, uh, what was it, 222 to 213. And they flipped five, flipped, they mean that they went from Democrat to Republican. Five seats were flipped in New York, and interestingly, one in California. So if you put those five New York seats that have been Democrat back into the Democrat column, the Democrats would control the House 218 to 217. But because of New York, the most blue state in the country, the Democratic machine of machines, there was a flip of five seats, kind of a miracle. 
the House became a Republican body, which is a very slim legislating majority, but the Republicans have control of the committees, which means they get to investigate as they see fit. We have a lot of questions as the American people about what has happened to us the last several years. The Democrat Party investigated what it wanted to, and that's fine. That's that car accident. They're seeing what they want to see. But they were suppressing and not investigating a lot of other issues, which are now are now being investigated. So, Zane, if we can just come off of this miracle and go to this bit with Dr. Redfield, which is from a very recent House uh, hearing, we'll see the power of investigations. Please, go ahead. Forward, the Democrats tell us. Focus on the future. Might have started in a lab. Might have, might have happened in nature. But here's the question I keep coming up with. If, if it may have been a lab, may have been nature, we're supposed to look forward, then why did Dr. Fauci work so hard for just one of those theories? Why was it so important to push one over the other? Dr. Barris said, oh, we should entertain uh, all hypotheses. Dr. Fauci had his, uh, his hypothesis how this started. We should entertain all of them. But that's not what happened. That is definitely not what happened. Three years ago, if you thought it came from a lab, if you raised that, you were called a nut job. You got censored on Twitter. You were blacklisted on Twitter. You were even called a crackpot by the very scientist who in late January sent emails to Dr. Fauci and said it came from a lab. They called you crackpot. Is that right, Dr. Redfield? I think the most upsetting thing to me was the uh, Baltimore Sun calling me a racist because I said this came from a Wuhan lab. Dr. Reptil, you, were, you're, uh, you, you ran the CDC and you were on the Coronavirus Task Force, is that right? Correct. That was formed on January 29th, 2020, is that right? Correct. Two days later, Dr. Fauci gets an email from Dr. Anderson which says what? Virus looks engineered, virus not consistent with evolutionary theory. Is that accurate? That's my understanding. From Next day, I know. He, did he share that email with you, by the way, Dr. Redfield? No. As a member of the task force, as a head of CDC, did he share that email with you? No. Okay. Next day, February 1st, Dr. Gary sends Dr. Fauci another email. That email says, I don't know how this happens in nature, but it would be easy to do in a lab. Did he share that email with you, Dr. Redfield? No. You no. didn't see either one of those emails, even though you're head of CDC, even though you're on the coronavirus task force that had been formed just two days, three days earlier. No. Three days later, Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, who told us it came from a lab and emails to Dr. Fauci that Dr. Fauci wouldn't let Dr. Redfield see, three days later, they changed their position 180 degrees. The question is why? Mr. Wade, why would they change their position that fast when the only intervening event is a conference call with Dr. Fauci, the guy who wouldn't let Dr. Redfield see the very emails that they had sent him, Dr. Redfield, head of CDC on the Coronavirus Task Force. Why would they change their position, Dr. Wade, or Mr. Wade? Uh, well, this question does lie at the heart of the um, issue. Uh, what is pertinent, it seems to me, is there's, there's no new scientific evidence that we can see that came uh, available between these dates, the January 31st I, and Feb 4. Right, there's no new, I think you're, go ahead. So you have to ask if there were other uh, other kinds of influence uh, available. <clears throat> now, it is true that, that mm, Dr. Fauci and Dr. Farry in London were very powerful research officials, and between them, they controlled... I read, I read your testimony. I saw okay. that. Yeah. So... Why don't you uh, cut to the chase and tell them what you really think was the reason? <laughs> uh, I don't know what, what the reason was. I, I know what it was. Uh, I, 
Go well, ahead. no, go ahead. Go ahead. I'll let you say it because I read your testimony. I think you, you said it in your testimony, too. Maybe you're reluctant <clears> to say it here, but go ahead. Well, if you're looking at the timeline, on um, May 21st, um, just uh, a few weeks after the Nature, Med uh, the, the Nature Medicine article had come out, uh, two of the signatories of the original email to uh, Dr. Fauci, that, that's Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary, were awarded a $9 million grant for the So there's reason. $9 million reasons why they changed their mind. I knew you'd get to it. I read that last night. Three months after, so three days after they say it came from a lab, they changed their position in the only intervening events, a conference call with Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins. Again, a call that Mr. Redfield was not allowed to be on, the head of CDC and on the coronavirus task force. And then three months later, shazam, they get nine million bucks from Dr. Fauci. Well, isn't that something? Isn't that something? That's why we want to talk to these guys. That's why Chairman Winstrup wants to bring in Dr. Anderson and Dr. Gary and ask them a series of questions so we can get to the bottom of this. So we can move forward and deal with this. Here's the key question. Look, I don't, I'm not, I'm just a common sense guy from Ohio. I, I, well, I, was, I majored in wrestling in college. But I got a degree in economics. You're supposed to get a degree when you go to college. I got one in economics. And one of the things they tell you about is a thing called opportunity costs. So when you're spending your time making sure that the country believes only one of these theories, you could have been doing what Dr. Redfield was doing in our government, trying to figure out how we deal with this virus. And what was, what was Dr. Fauci doing? He was trying to cover his backside. And everybody knows it. And that's the part that ticks us off, because this is the highest paid guy in our government getting all kinds of money to tell us things that were not accurate, because we now know. U.S. tax dollars went to a lab in China, a lab that was not up to code, a lab that was doing gain-of-function research, and that's where this thing most definitely came from. And Dr. Fauci had to prove, no, no, he can't have that news getting out. And that's why he did what he did to the exclusion of a brilliant guy running our CDC, kept him out of the loop. Keeping him out of the loop probably potentially could have harmed America. That's the thing that ticks us all off. And that's why, Mr. Chairman, this, this hearing is so darn important, and we get to the bottom of really what happened. I yield back. Well, there, well, 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 well. Oh, Nine million reasons. This goes back to what we were talking about. Our universities are funded by the government. And the output of those universities is based on what the government would like to hear. So we had researchers that on day one were saying, this is a gain-of-function lab-created virus. And after 9 million reasons, they set up, came out of nature. Nothing could be more, a greater indictment of our university system, of our government university interface, and of the Darwinists who have no sacred honor who are involved in running our government. And this miracle that five House seats flipped in the bluest of blue states, how did that happen? I mean, in Minnesota, you know, the Republicans lost everything. They were like, wiped out, wiped out. And people worked hard to see Republican victories. But in New York, for some reason, five house seats flipped. The Republicans got control of the investigations, and they're looking at the car accident from their corner. And this information is critical, absolutely critical. And these investigations are going to continue. So let's remember what politics really needs to be about. Truth and nonviolence. Now, getting to ultimate truth, 
We can only strive to get there. We're not going to get to the ultimate truth. But I was reading an a, a, um, editorial on Bloomberg this weekend. We'll never know what happened. That's bullshit. They don't want the truth, a closer approximation of the truth to come out. We'll never really know what happened. See, now we knew what happened. Remember? I remember. I remember all the people that deplatformed me because I knew, I've been to China many times, I knew how this scam works. You know, all hands across the water, we're all, all in it together for human peace, you know? And the Chinese played these scientists because these people are gullible, okay? A smiling face, some Mao Tai and a cigarette, and everybody's friends? What a bunch of bullshit. These people got played by the Chinese. And again, it's not the Chinese fault. They're just, they're just out there playing the game with their rule book. But we got to understand is we have a rule book. They have a rule book. There's no common rule book. There was a common rule book. It was called the World Trade Organization rules, okay? But nobody follows them. Everybody is freelancing, and it's about power. So when we understand that our counterparties are not playing in a league with us, that they're doing their own thing, and we continue to like, oh, I don't know, give them the keys to the biomedical research. Here's how you mutate viruses. Please go do this for us. These people are either, again, it's the same thing. They're either grossly incompetent and underinformed, or they have some kind of insidious agenda that we don't know about yet. But now we have house investigations. They're investing, and this is so critical that we understand who these people are, how they're functioning. It's about this Darwinist group of mad scientists. We saw that thing several podcasts ago about Herman Kahn. These people are crazy. They don't have a shred of spirituality. They believe that survival of the fittest is the model of the world, and if they survive, it proves they're right. People that know about logic would have a word for this. Let's leave that for another podcast. The point is, a miracle has happened, and it's opened the space to look for truth. If we have truth, a closer approximation or understanding of the truth, we can get to justice. If we get to justice, we can have peace. We can overthrow this business model by our participation, by the participation of the American people in the political process. I will guarantee you that Republican Party participants were hugely engaged on Long Island and helped bring about those victories. Somehow the Democrats failed. Arrogance. They just let it go. And I'm sure this is something that they've analyzed and that they will be back in full force in 2024 to reclaim those seats. But if the Democrat Party starts to seek truth, if we see ourselves as one American community and we're working together from different perspectives to bring about a higher level of truth and justice and well-being, which is peace, you know, we can start to function together as the government could function, which is Lots of conflict that is steeped in a constitutional process which is based on oratory and composition, 
a presentation of ideas, an investigation seeking the truth. And if we work together to find those truths and we confront those truths and we do not suppress each other, if we allow, why is there so much deplat? Do you know if you said that virus came out of the Wuhan lab three years ago, you were deplatformed. I had many people stop talking to me over me saying that. They just cut me off. Oh, now it's the facts. Well, there's a lot of other facts that I was saying three years ago, which were obvious to me, which are going to, you know, tumble out now. Are we as the American people going to uptake these facts or are we going to have them suppressed by media? If we suppress dialogue in a free society, we lose our free society. We must have dialogue, discourse, and disagreement. We must continuously challenge all ideas. And in that continuous competition of ideas, I didn't say there was no Darwinism. I said there was no spirit. We need to bring the spiritual back into this human enterprise. And as we have this competition of ideas, we need to be thinking about the well-being of the people. And when we get to the, a closer awareness of the truth, we can learn from this and we can make policy changes that put well-being as the centerpiece of our government's output. Messing with viruses and enhancing their function for whatever reason is a bad idea. A lot of the research that's being done in the world today, this judgment that all scientific output is necessarily good, is a scam. We are meddling with things as humanity that is going to lead to our destruction as human beings. And we the people need to understand it. We the people need to focus on well-being. And we just need to defund and make these people irrelevant. We need a course correction. And that's what politics is about. That's what my participation is about. That's what this podcast is about. And I want to thank you for joining me. I urge you to spread the word. Click that subscribe button. And let's get people aware of the horrible misdirection and malfeasance that is going on that we the people can correct through our participation in our great history and in in, in this great republic that we have been given to us by our forefathers. Thanks for being here with me, and I'll see you soon again.